We inherit loads of stuff from our families. We can inherit brown eyes, knobbly knees. We can inherit a rather ugly teapot that we have to show because it was great-grandma's. And in my family, we've inherited quite a few of in-jokes. You say something and the family giggles and everybody with us just goes, what? Family are descendants from a common ancestor, but it's also a group that's related by blood or marriage. As a group that's related by the blood of Jesus, we are family. There's a family that's talked about in Hebrews 12 who inherit something amazing. They inherit the promise of God. And Stephen, when he was talking to the Sanhedrin, gave a brief summary of their story, which I want to read and which hopefully is going to appear on the screen behind me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. Abraham was living in Ur. He was living the equivalent of a really nice life. Ur, when they've done archaeological digs, is a really good place to live. It's kind of like living in Kensington or the Golden Triangle in Norwich for those people who are local. It was a nice place to live. And God told him to go. And he spent the rest of his life living in a tent. But God promised that he would have a land for him and his family and that his family would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And to show that God was with him, God changed his name. If you look on the screen, I've put Abraham's name with an H in white. That's because his name was originally Abraham, which means exalted father. But when God spoke to him, he changed his name and called him Abraham, which means father of many. Think about an H. It's a... It's a, it's a representation in his name that God breathed into his life and the Spirit of God was with him. And every time someone yelled his name, he remembered the promise of God. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Way, way back, many centuries ago, not long after the Bible began, Jacob lived in the land of Canaan. For those of you who've seen the musical, I am talking about Joseph, but I'm talking about Joseph of the Bible, not the musical, and they are quite different. For example, the musical calls Jacob a fine example of a family man. If you read the story, it's a little bit different. We are told in Genesis 37 that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. It's a little promise for anybody who's getting on there. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. For anyone who's not got a perfect family, the story of Joseph 
is how parental failing is a catalyst to God's blessing sometimes. Joseph was not held back by his family, by the fact that his brothers hated him and they were jealous of him. He was not held back by the fact that his brother, his father, gave him this fantastic robe. Not necessarily a robe of many colours, sorry, but it was a robe that had long sleeves. And long sleeves meant that he was not a labourer, he was an overseer. Joseph was put in a position of responsibility over his older brothers. And I'm pretty sure we can all guess how well that went. They hated him because his father loved him more. And they hated him because of his dreams. Joseph had dreams that the sun, moon and stars would bow down to him. That sheaves of wheat would bow down to him. And this just made his brothers hate him even more. And even Jacob was a little bit sarcastic about it. He says, what kind of dream is that? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually bow to the ground before you? I read a slightly sarcastic tone of voice in that passage. The interesting thing about Joseph is he's one of the few characters in the Old Testament who nothing bad is said about at all. The Jews call him Joseph the Righteous. He was not tainted by his background but he kept his eyes on the promise that had been given to his family. Eventually, the brothers' jealousy and hatred overwhelmed them so that they threw Joseph into a pit. And then, just as they were about to kill him, some Ishmaelite traders walked past and they saw the chance to make a profit, and so they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders and they took Joseph into Egypt. Just think about that for a minute. Joseph is living in the land of promise for his family. He's living in the land of Canaan. He's living in the land where he's been told his family are going to flourish and become more numerous than the stars in the sky. And as the result of those actions by his brother, he's taken out of the land of promise and taken to the pagan land of Egypt. In the land of Egypt, he's sold to Potiphar and he's sold into slavery. So Joseph has gone from being the favoured child in his father's house to being a slave. If we look at Genesis 39, though, look what the story says. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did. The Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. The Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. With Joseph there, he didn't have to worry about a thing, not even the sort of food he was going, except the sort of food he was going to eat. Joseph may have been come out of the land of promise, but the presence of God is with him. And all through his story, we are told that the Lord is with him and helps him to succeed, and that the blessing doesn't just limit itself to Joseph, the blessing overflows to the people around him. Joseph does not lose his faith in God. The word faith isn't actually mentioned in his story, but how do we know he doesn't lose his faith? Because these Bible stories come down to us as tales told around the family fire, as tales told to children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And what Joseph was telling them was that the Lord was with him and he was being blessed by God. Joseph's story is a story of how faith makes a difference to our lives if we keep our faith in God. Joseph is living a life of a slave, but he is favoured. And then Potiphar's wife starts telling lies about him, and he's thrown into prison. It's quite interesting. He's thrown into the king's prison. 
not the normal slave prison, which makes me think that Potiphar didn't quite believe what his wife was telling him, but he didn't want to cause a problem. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favourite with the prison warder. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. The blessing is following Joseph. The favour of God is with him. And into the king's prison comes the cupbearer and the baker from the Pharaoh's court. And they have dreams. Joseph, of course, is an expert on dreams. It's dreams that got him into this position. And he says to them, interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. Again, Joseph doesn't say, oh, I've had dreams, I'm good at dreams, tell me what your dreams mean. No, he immediately says, interpreting dreams is God's business. He immediately stakes his faith in God to interpret dreams. And he gives the interpretation of the dreams to the baker and to the cupbearer. The interpretation to the cupbearer, as we remember, is a positive one. You're going to be restored to the favour of the Pharaoh. And because of this, Joseph has a request. He says, Mention me to the Pharaoh. He might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison, and I did nothing to deserve it. Remember, Joseph comes from a family of jealousy and strife where younger brothers are raised against older brothers, where actually his father only loved one of his wives. He comes from a difficult family, but Joseph does not let the family background affect him. He doesn't talk about his situation with bitterness, with hatred. He doesn't even blame anyone. He just gives the basic facts. I'm in prison, I didn't do anything to deserve it. He doesn't say, my brothers were mean to me and then Potiphar's wife told tales and it's not fair. He doesn't do that. Because he knows God's with him and he's trusting God. And I would be stamping my feet. Joseph isn't. The dream comes true. The cupbearer is restored to favour in the Pharaoh's court. Hooray! And then he forgets about Joseph. Sometimes, even when we're living a life of faith in God, we have a time of waiting, we have a time of testing, we have a time of endurance. When Joseph was stolen from his homeland, he was 17. He's now 28. He is undergoing endurance, a faith that is being endured. James tells us that we know that when our faith is tested, endurance has a chance to grow. This is what's happening with Joseph. His faith is being tested and it is growing. Genesis 41 tells us that it is two full years later that the Pharaoh dreams he's standing on a riverbank. Seven fat cows come out of the uh, the Nile, followed by seven thin cows that stand beside the fat cows and then eat them. And Pharaoh wakes up stressed. He then has a very similar dream with sheaves of wheat. And his first instinct is to call the soothsayers. If you're living in a pagan land and you do not believe in God, what a soothsayer says becomes really important because who else do you go to for wisdom when you're confused? The soothsayers can't interpret the dream. I've always found this a bit puzzling because to me it's a bit obvious. You've got seven fat cows and then you've got seven thin cows. 
So you've got famine, you've got plenty, and then you've got famine. That is not a very difficult dream to interpret. So I looked into it because I thought, okay, if they're soothsayers at the Pharaoh court, surely they're better than this. And I found a very interesting Jewish commentary that said the thing that tripped the soothsayers up was the sentence, these cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank. They couldn't understand how you could have fat cows and thin cows in the same place. Because surely you either have fat cows or thin cows. And they were confused. And what this tells us is how God works. If we have a word from God, it doesn't just give us information, it gives us wisdom. Because Joseph's interpretation isn't just an interpretation of what the Pharaoh saw, it is wisdom for, from God as to how to respond. So the Pharaoh's sitting here and he's confused. I don't know what to do. The soothsayers can't help. And finally the cupbearer goes... There was this guy in prison, actually, that's quite good with dreams. You should ask him. So the pharaoh calls for Joseph, who has a shave and makes himself look nice, and then comes before the pharaoh, and the first thing he says is, it is beyond my power to do this, but God can tell you what it means and put you at ease. Joseph stakes everything on God's ability to give him the message that is needed. He doesn't say, well, I'm sure God can help. He stakes everything on his total faith that God is going to come through for him. And then he tells the Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. You need to prepare for the famine in the time of plenty. And that is the bit that the soothsayers missed. The reason why the cows are coexisting on the riverbank is because you need to prepare for what is coming afterwards in the time you are currently living. So the pharaoh is not just receiving an explanation of his dream, he's he's receiving wisdom from God as to how to proceed. And his immediate response is, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God. And Joseph the slave is taken out of prison and raised to a position of status. And he's given an Egyptian name, which is uh, Zaphoneth Panea, which means God speaks and lives. Joseph's identity, even in the Egyptian court, is rooted in his faith in God. Wherever he goes, wherever his name is said, people will remember that he speaks for God. Joseph is 30 when he starts serving in the Pharaoh's court. It's taken, if I can do some maths, 13 years to go from slavery to a position where he's acknowledged. It's a long time for your faith to be tested and endurance to grow. And the Pharaoh leaves him with a wife, and he has children. He calls the first one Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. (coughs) He calls his second son Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. Those are both Hebrew names. Joseph doesn't think, well, actually, it's quite nice in Egypt. I've got status, I've got a nice wife, I've got some children. I can settle down here. He keeps his heritage alive in the names he gives his children. 
and the names he gives his children are names that reflect the blessing he's currently receiving, but also that the fact that this land is not his home. Egypt never becomes Jacob's home, uh, Joseph's home. He gives his children Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. He also is even now refusing to harbor bitterness and anger. This might be the land of his grief, but the Lord has helped him forget his troubles in the land. The, the, plenty, the years of plenty pass. And the years of famine come. And Joseph's family eventually come to Egypt looking for grain. Joseph spends some time just seeing where they are emotionally. Are they the family he left, the family that would throw a brother into a system? But he finds that they've learned, they've repented of what they've done. And they've learned to really love their father. And they've learned to put themselves before each other. And so he can reveal to them who he is. And Joseph says, God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who has made me an advisor to the Pharaoh. Joseph's faith is projecting backwards and interpreting what has happened to him in the light of faith. It is present with him that he has faith that his family have repented, they've learnt to love, and that they will now thrive in the land. And he settles them in the land of Goshen. There are a couple of interesting things about the land of Goshen. First of all, it's really fertile. So, there's 70, now, 70 members of Jacob's family settled in the land, but it's a good land if your numbers are going to increase. You're going to have great grazing for your livestock. You're going to be able to grow crops. It's a land where you can flourish and multiply. The second thing about Geshen is it is quite a way away from the main Egyptian cultural and power centers, which means you're unlikely to be tainted by the culture that you are living in. And the third thing is that it is on the eastern side of Egypt. So if, for example, things started to go badly and you needed to escape, you're on the right side of the country to do so. Joseph is blessing his family, but he's blessing them in a way that is looking forward to the future. Joseph never starts thinking, well, we're in a good place here. We need to, to just settle and it'll be fine. And maybe this is the land of God's promise. Joseph never believes that. He always keeps faith in the promise that was given to his family. And even when he's dying at the very end of Exodus, he says... God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And this is how Joseph is remembered in Hebrews. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when he left. Joseph has remembered the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And he has arranged things so that that promise will not be forgotten in the family in generations to come. He tells his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren, take me when you leave. So they are never going to sit there thinking, oh, well, it's quite comfortable here. 
Maybe we should stay because they've got Joseph's instruction. When you leave, take me with you. Joseph's life exemplifies a faith described in Psalm 130. I am counting on the Lord. I have put my hope in his word. He lived his entire life with faith for the word that God gave to him. And Galatians tells us that because we belong to Christ, we are true children of Abraham. We are Abraham's heirs, and we are part of God's promise to Abraham. We have the promise to be fruitful and multiply. But beyond that, we know that we have the promise of Jesus. We have the promise that goes beyond anything Abraham could imagine, to be children of God. And that is what our faith is rooted in. If Matthew could just bring me my official aid at this point. One thing I've learned during this talk is if you ask a family of engineers to make you a prop, they do it properly. This is my shield of faith. We are told in Ephesians that our, sh- our faith is a shield against the fiery darts of the enemy. At the time that Paul was writing, he was thinking about a Roman shield, which was pretty much this size. We might have got a bit exaggerated with the scale. Um, but the Roman soldiers would put them next to each other and they would make this shape called a tortoise, which would protect them against all the arrows that were coming at them. In modern parlance, I thought that probably the closest was a riot shield. And because I wasn't allowed to buy a riot shield, Matthew made me one. Um, But the great thing about a riot shield is you can see through it. This is our faith. Our faith is not a weapon. It's not the sword of the Spirit. That's the word of God. Our faith is a shield because it is going to protect us from anything that life can throw at us. And what is our faith rooted in? It's rooted in the prayer that we say every week, which is going to come up on the screen behind me, hopefully. Our faith is rooted in the fact we have God's grace to forgive us. Our faith is rooted in the fact that God's love will change us. It's rooted in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. Remember at the beginning I said we're a family drawn together by blood. The blood of Jesus on the cross draws us together. And if we put our shields next to each other, together we stand. I just want to say the prayer at this point, please. Dear Lord Jesus, I need you. I need your grace to forgive me and your love to change me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please forgive me for the sin in my life. I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. With your help, I will live my life for you. Amen. If that prayer has become meaningful to you for the first time today, please come and talk to me afterwards. For those of us who've maybe said the prayer more than once, the words of Hebrews 4 are for us. 
Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help when we need it most. We need to stand our ground. We need to hold the shield of faith up to our circumstances. Psalm 104 says this, When you give your breath, life is created and you renew the face of the earth. Alternative translations say, When you send your spirit, life is created and you renew the face of the earth. The breath of God that created life and a promise in Abraham, that created a faith that would last to this day, the Jewish people, the family of Abraham, are more numerous than the stars in the sky. The breath of God spoke into his family and produced that. The breath of God, the Spirit of God, is in you because Jesus died for you. 